Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. We welcome today Brian Stokes Mitchell. Welcome, Stokes. Thank you, John. Thanks, Howard. Um, obviously, a few little Broadway credits, like Man of La Mancha, Tony Award for Kiss Me, Kate, Ragtime, a bunch of other shows, a lot of television credits, including Trapper John. We'll get to that in a little bit. Yes. And most recently, you've become a solo recording artist, a brand new CD on a brand new record label, yeah. Label Records. Yes. And the album is self-titled Brian Stokes Mitchell. Yes. It seemed like a good title since no one else had taken that one yet. <laughs> I had about five other titles. I kept going through them. And one of the things you do is you Google everything now. Yeah. So I would Google titles and see, okay, what comes up? What comes up? Oh, somebody use that. Oh, somebody use that. Oh, somebody use that. And then I thought, oh, Brian Stokes Mitchell. Nobody's used that one. I use that one. And probably only one person answering to Brian Stokes Mitchell. As far as I know. I know I do. Now, you used to be Brian Mitchell. When did Stokes come into it? You know, it's funny. When I was doing Trapper John the, another lifetime ago, the, the uh-huh. first series that I ever did, um, the very first season of that, I was listed as Brian Stokes Mitchell. That's how I... I uh, um, get myself uh, put on with, with SAG. Um, but then after that, I thought, oh, that's just so long and so pretentious. And uh, so I took the Stokes off and, and, and put the Brian Mitchell back. But now I figured I'm pretentious enough. I, I'm a Broadway actor. I can put the Stokes back in if I want. So we went to Bro- when you went to Broadway, Stokes went back in? No, actually, that didn't happen until ragtime. Oh. Um, I, one of the things that happened with my name, Brian Mitchell, people would always call me the wrong thing. Usually it was Michael. People, th- I think, guess it would th- they would think they'd take the Mitchell and then the long eye from the Brian and and 99.999% of the time, people call me wrong name. It was Michael. And also, I went through this whole uh, kind of... Um, uh, um, uh, I, I, was, I, was, I was looking at names and trying to figure out, you know, what makes a great name, what makes a, a bad name. And um, I started a- analyzing. That's the word I was looking for. I was analyzing names. And Brian Mitchell is just... It's a great name to have as a usual regular guy name. But as a stage name, they're two very neutral names. Doesn't stand out. No, it doesn't. Brian isn't, doesn't say anything. It's not a bad name, a good name. It's not an aggressive name. It's not a passive name. It's not a you know interesting name. It's not an uninteresting name. And same thing with Mitchell. And they're these two very neutral names. So I, I was going to change my name completely, actually, uh, around ragtime. And I kept going through all these different uh, names, and I would take these sheets around to friends and say, what about this name? What about this name? See what it looks like? And I started breaking things down to marquee value and syllables and all these different ways you can analyze a name. And finally, I just put my middle name back in, and it seemed to be a good thing. But then when you came in here today... And you introduce yourself as Brian Stokes Mitchell. People invariably call you Brian. People in the hallway say, oh, hi, Brian. Nice to meet you. But you go by Stokes. Yeah, I do. I, I, I go by both, you know. But usually most people now call me Stokes. My friends and people that know right. me call me Stokes. And people that don't know me generally call me Brian. So uh, that's how I can usually tell. It's kind of a nice little <laughs> thing. If somebody says, hey, Brian, you know, from the street, I know it's probably somebody that doesn't know me. Mm-hmm. Well, now that we've got that down, <laughs> let me ask you. How you came to put this group of songs together for this first album, clearly named Brian Stokes Mitchell, what what were you looking for in your first opportunity to do an entire program of songs for a recording? That's a great question, Howard. Um, I started actually working on the album right after I finished Ragtime, and I kept shelving it because I kept getting Broadway shows, thankfully. And when you're doing a Broadway show, of course, there's no time or voice or anything to do pretty much anything else. So I would kind of put it aside. I would work on arrangements at that time. But I really didn't get to finish it until uh, about... uh, well, the main focus of the work started about two years ago. My son was born two and a half years ago, and I said, I'm going to take a year off Broadway, and that's really when I focused on it. 
Um, from the beginning, though, one of the things I did, I have a website that I started, and one of the main reasons of starting the reps website was to ask people, what do you want to hear if I record a, a, an album? And so people would write in all sorts of different great song titles, and many of them are, are on the album. Um, but it also told me, who's my audience? Who am I going to be selling this to? And, of course, most of the people that know me as a singer know me from Broadway. So the vast majority of the tunes that came in were Broadway tunes and also a good number of standards, too. So I thought, know thy audience, and you know, and, and I decided to create an album that was uh, Broadway tunes and standards, m- uh, largely of the numbers that people had suggested, and um, but give them my little spin. I didn't want to do a usual Broadway album for a number of reasons. The main reason was. Uh, th- well, the first thing, a baritone voice is a very big, huge, fat kind of voice. And for my taste, um, they don't go down so well listening to a whole album. It's great when you listen to a, a show and it's broken up by other songs, chorus numbers, uh, sopranos, altos, all these different uh, people singing. But when I listen to baritones on albums, I generally can listen to a few numbers and then I got to put it down or put it away. I, it's hard to get through the whole thing just because it's so thick. It's like eating steak and potatoes, breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. You know, it's really great for a meal or two or three, but you don't want to have that every other time. So I have something else that I've done for years. I have what I call more of a recording voice. It's a lighter voice and it sits on your ear a little bit easier. And because a lot of what I ended up doing on it because I orchestrated and arranged it. It's also self-produced. I ended up doing a lot of jazz. Um, That sound works better with with jazz and a lot of standards. A big, fat voice singing just in time just sounds anachronistic. It doesn't quite work. So that's a very long answer to a very short question, wasn't it? You said that you orchestrated, arranged, produced. Obviously, it's you singing. How did you get the opportunity to do that much on your first album? Because you don't always hear about people having that degree of control. Right. Well, the main reason I I was able to do that is because originally I was just going to sell it myself on the Internet. It had been my experience talking to friends and just reading articles that – and as we probably know and I don't know how many listeners know, Broadway shows almost never make money. Um, the 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 albums, I mean, um, the shows almost never make money. Also, but Broadway show albums rarely make money, and it's the same thing true for Broadway performers. The albums that the, that they make rarely make money because I think one reason it's because it's kind of a niche group uh, of people that listen to Broadway albums compared to, for instance, people that listen to rap music or top forty music nowadays. I mean, you have millions and millions and millions of people that do that, and not so many people that listen to Broadway albums. Um, so I had originally intended to market it on my website. It was one of the things that I thought. I thought, I'll get a record company to distribute it, and I will market it on my own. And um, Because you end up being able, as a financial uh, um, investment, you end up being able to make more money back per album that you sell. Um, happy accident happened about two years ago. Uh, a friend of mine uh, got Phil Bursch and I together at a at a lunch at Norma's restaurant, and we sat down, and he said, well, I'm thinking of starting a record company. Let's explain who Phil Bursch is. Phil Bursch is the president of Playbill. And, of course, Playbill is the magazine that everybody opens when they go into a Broadway theater and many non-Broadway theaters all over the country, too. 
And he said he wanted to start a record company, and he had heard through my friend that I was working on this album, and we just hit it off immediately. And um, since then, Sony uh, has become involved as the um, uh, company that's uh, it's a P&D deal, basically. It's production and distribution for my particular album. But um, Playbill Records, as it is now called, will also be compiling albums. So mine is the first uh, inaugural album. But uh, after that, there's many, many albums that Playbill will have. And what... Phil and Playbill offered me, basically, was I give them a, a finished master, and I get the the advantage of the advertising power that Playbill has in four million issues per month and, and the many, many millions of hits they get on their website. It's the largest website um, for the theater in the world, Playbill.com, and now they have PlaybillRecords.com also that, that covers the album, my album specifically, and what Playbill Records will be doing in the future. You said a moment ago you didn't want to do the usual quote-unquote uh, Broadway-style album. Is that in terms of the selection of material, the arrangements, or some other factors it, well? It's really more in, in arrangement. Mm-hmm. I wanted to use Broadway music because it's this incredibly rich uh, panoply of, of, of emotion and incredible lyrics and uh, great melodies that you don't find so often in in pop music, but I wanted to approach it in a way that wasn't quite so, for lack of a better word, stodgy as some Broadway um, uh, arrangements can be. Uh, I wanted to give it a little bit different flavor. And also, the album's called Brian Stokes Mitchell, so I wanted it to be an expression of who I am. I didn't want it to be a, an album where I'm singing Broadway tunes. That's in my head. I've got six albums in my head, by the way. i got so many great ideas from people that one of the albums, perhaps the next album I'll do, will just be straight, big, fat, baritone Broadway songs. Um, but this album, I wanted to be an expression of who I am as an artist. And so that's why I decided to, to wear so many hats. I've started orchestrating and arranging when I was in my 20s, when I was on Trapper John MD, actually. I scored a number of the shows, and, and uh, I wrote a symphonic suite when I was in my 20s also and, and did a lot of conducting and studied that at UCLA. Uh, and I thought, well, I've got all these ideas for these arrangements. Why hire other people to do it when I hear them in my head? Now, later on, I ended up... Uh, hiring some other people like Don Sebesky, uh, Rob Mathis, Larry Hockman, some fantastic arrangers uh, to kind of round out the the arrangements that I hadn't done. Um, But it's just been a really, really fun journey, and I feel like the album is indeed an expression of who I am. Yet looking at the track listing, I don't see anything identified with Brian Stokes Mitchell. There's no Wheels of a Dream from Ragtime, nothing from Kiss Me, Kate, or the other shows you've been in. Yes, and one of the reasons I did that, I thought, well, if people want to hear that, I've already recorded those. They can get those albums. They they can already get Man of La Mancha and Hear Me Sing Impossible Dream. They are, I can already can get uh, Kiss of the Spider Woman or, or Ragtime or any of those, those uh, shows. And also it was neat because it kind of... Um, offers a different view of what I do. Those albums are a particular sound. And actually, one of the things I've always tried to do from show to show is kind of tailor a particular vocal style or vocal sound depending on the show. The vocal sound that I use in Ragtime is different than what I used in Kiss Me Kate. And it's different than what I used in South Pacific, which was very classical, almost operatic. Um, and on my album, because there's so much jazz in it, or jazz influence, not really a jazz album, but that's part of what's there because that's part of my background and what I love. Um, I tailored my voice in a way that that would fit that style. I actually had some more 
big theatrical songs on it. I threw out about five songs, and there was one that I really, really wanted to use, and it's going to end up on a later album. But I just couldn't make it fit because the sound was so big. It didn't fit in when I put all of the songs together. It didn't track with the rest of them. So I thought, okay, I'll use that on another album, and I ended up adding some other things later on. Well, we've been talking about the CD. Why don't we let it speak for itself? Okay. And this is your opportunity to play disc jockey. Why don't you uh, pick a song and then introduce it yourself, as, as you would have in, in your DJ voice. <laughs> <laughs> in my DJ voice. Well, I don't know if I'll do that. I, I don't think I could beat you there, John. Um, but I think that the thing to play for, from the album will be the first cut, which is Something's Coming. It's an, an arrangement and an orchestration that I did. And one of the reasons that I started with that song, I, I had conceived it originally, the album, with starting with that song, and I knew what I wanted it to be. I kind of wanted to state the theme of the whole album, which was basically, this is not going to be your usual Broadway album. It's got symphonic stuff in it. It's got jazz stuff in it. It's got a, a world kind of beat to it. It's got a little bit of everything. And it allows me then from track to track once the album gets started to kind of go off into these different areas. But it states the theme, so something's coming. Stokes, coming off of the album now, I want to go back really to the start of your career because there's a wonderful phrase in one bio we found of you referring to your awkward theatrical debut as Conrad Birdie <laughs> in the San Diego Junior Theater at the age of 14. Yes. But... Tell us just about your start in theater, because most of us ultimately became familiar with you from Trapper John, which right. you were on for seven seasons. Yeah, it's really funny, because I've kind of had this continuing career. Ever since I graduated from high school, I got into a repertory company, and I call myself the luckiest actor in the world. I've never had to do anything to make a living but act. I've always performed. I've never waited tables or done anything. But part of that has been I've changed up what it was that I'm doing. I I, uh, I started in theater, really, in San Diego. I worked at the Globe Theater, Starlight Opera, pretty much every company that I could work at down there. And then ended up getting a job with a company called the Twelfth Night Repertory Company, which is, no longer exists. And they at that time, they had a company in San Diego, Los Angeles, and, and and uh, San Francisco, and I thought, hmm, here's my opportunity to not only get my equity card, but to move <clears throat> to uh, Los Angeles, and that's exactly what ended up happening. Once I got to Los Angeles, I uh, auditioned for some television shows and, uh, and auditioned for some other stage shows, and I ended up getting a show called Festival, which played at the Las Palmas Theater, which was a musical. And it actually ended up coming out here and playing at City Center for a while, a little bit later on. Um, during that show, though, uh, a producer had come to see one of the uh, other people that was in the show with me, uh, a guy named Gregory Harrison, and they were coming to see him as a potential star for a new show that they were working on called, called Trapper John M.D., a new TV show. And in the middle of the show, I heard this story about two years into the show. I didn't even realize this. But in the middle of the show, Don Brinkley is the producer's name. Don Brinkley's wife, Marge, leaned over to him and said... How about him for Jackpot, which was the name of the character that I ended up playing for seven years on the show. So I didn't even realize it. Really, that was the moment I got cast in Trapper John M.D. because I still had to go through all the auditions for the network and for the casting directors and, and the producers and everybody else involved. And then from there, I, I continued to do a lot of work in, in uh, television. The first job I actually got before Trapper John was a, a role on Roots, The Next Generations, which was a sequel to, to Roots. 
and didn't have an agent, didn't have a SAG card. I saw it was being cast, sent in a resume and a photo to Ruben Cannon, the casting director, and two weeks later he said, we have something that we think you might be right for, and it ended up being one of the co-starring roles in the first episode, and that kind of put me on the map in the television world. So um, from there, I just continued doing television, and then after Trapper John, what happens is people get tired of you. So I thought, let me rewrite myself now, and I went into the voiceover world, and I did about, oh, uh, dozens and dozens of animated uh, television shows and uh, a few of them as a, as a regular. And uh, then from there, I thought, I got to get back to the stage. That really is my first love. And at that point, I hadn't done Broadway. And I auditioned for a show called Mail, which was uh, had music by Michael Rupert. And it started at the Pasadena Playhouse and ended up getting transferred to Broadway. It ran for a very short amount of time on Broadway, but I ended up winning a Theater World Award. It was kind of gave me a nice taste of of Broadway and Broadway a taste of who I was. And then after that, I just kept coming back to other shows. It's funny, the second show that I did, I had come out to audition for Porgy and Bess uh, for James Levine at the Metropolitan Opera. I was on the stage there for uh, Sport and Life. And uh, at the same time, I'd heard about an audition that David Merrick was doing for OK. So I had auditioned for both shows, and when I got out of the audition for the Metropolitan Opera, I heard that I had been offered the, the role uh, uh, from David Merrick. And about 20 minutes later, they called back and they said, you've also been offered Sport and Life and Porgy and Bess. And I said, wow, this is going to be a really tough one. And, and I tried to see if I could make both of them happen, but I couldn't. And still, I think, what year was that, 19... 19- 80? What year was that? 1989-90. Still, if anybody has the Metropolitan Opera program from back then, I appear as an artist that season because it was very kind of last minute the way everything happened. Um, But I ended up choosing David Merrick's last show that he produced as a sole producer. The last show. Yes. Why why, why that choice versus the other? Because I knew a a few things. Uh, The Porgy and Best they had already done. Uh, It wasn't the the, uh, first time they were doing it in the season, so it had been reviewed. Um, It was more like something I thought would be really fun to do. It was a great challenge, you know, singing Amplified on the Met stage. I thought, boy, that would really be fantastic. But I I wanted to do Broadway. That was really where my heart was. And I think my dreams had been in San Diego at the Globe and all these other places that I'd been performing. And here was an opportunity, finally, to star in a a Broadway show as a leading man. It was my first show uh, as that. So I made that choice. And it was a it turned out to be actually the the right choice. I'm very, very happy. Even that, though that show didn't run so long. It was interesting because it got a relatively good reviews, um, but it was closed down because David Merrick, from what I understand, was going through divorce proceedings at the time. And there was some kind of problem with the box office and I don't know what all. And so he closed down the show and uh, with the thought of opening it up six weeks later. Six weeks later, I'd moved back to Los Angeles and gotten 100 episodes of an animated series called James Bond Jr. And in the animated world, 100 episodes, boy, that's a that's great a thing. That's what you want because you get all the residuals and everything from that. And they called me and asked me if I wanted to come back to do the show. And at that point, it was just I was too deep in the other thing. And I said no. And it ended up closing in previews, the, the second incarnation of it. So that ended up being a happy decision, too. So you had made it to a Broadway musical when you were age 14 and Bye Bye Birdie. Was that your goal? No, that 
Children. Well, I, no, that was actually my first musical I ever did. The, right. they're the very first right. Broadway right. musical but, I did. But at, at, at that age, was that your goal to be an actor, to be on stage? No, I, I think it was something that I. It turned out I had an aptitude uh-huh. for. My my brother George and my brother John also were kind of the actors in the family. My place was always music. I started playing the piano when I was six and 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 played every other instrument that I could get my hands on, and I was singing even at, before that age. But I stayed away from theater because of this fraternal kind of competition. I I was always in band and chorus, and they were always in the theater. I was raised overseas. So by the time we moved back to the United States, um, I was in uh, the ninth grade in a junior high school. My brother John was in a senior in high school, and my older brother George had graduated. So they said, do you want to take chorus or band or drama? And I was so tired of chorus and band. I said, I'll take drama. And a really fascinating thing, the very first thing that I did in Mrs. Lund's ninth grade drama class was good morrow kate for that's your name i hear which is of course from the taming of the shrew and um many years later when i was doing kiss me kate it was a beautiful kind of closing of a circle because i was sitting in the audience watching junior high school students perform scenes from the taming of the shrew that one being one of them and i thought wow what an interesting journey here that was my first scene that i ever did and here i am now sitting in my broadway house the martin beck theater they're performing these scenes on my set because it was a special thing that they had set up with with our show and here i was playing a petruchio in that show now as a big fat broadway star and i think at that point i had already won the the Tony Award for it, too. And I thought, wow, this is pretty neat. Of course, Taming the Shrew, the show within the show, Kiss Me Kate, based on Shakespeare's Taming the Shrew. Yes, exactly. Kind of full circle for you. Exactly. So it was one of those magical moments for me. Well, after the hundred episodes of James Bond Jr., (laughs) which which I'm sure many of us are now going to seek out, um, (laughs) you came back to Broadway uh, in a couple of shows in which you were a replacement, first Jelly's Last Jam and taking over for Gregory Hines. Yes. How was going into that show, since that was a show that was so closely associated with Gregory Hines. He had really developed it. He was he was involved in the writing of it and producing. Yeah. That, it's interesting because I actually saw that show originally at the Mark Taper Forum with another cast entirely. And the show that I went to was the show that Gregory Hines was at. And the first time I met him was when he be- went backstage to say hello to everybody backstage. And we happened to be backstage. I was saying hello to my friends. And as it turned out, he was kind of scoping out the show. I guess they were wooing him to see if he wanted to do it. At that time, there was no tap dancing involved in in, uh, in the show. And uh, uh, George Wolfe then took it over and turned it into this wonderful vehicle for, for Gregory. Um, then I remember Greg Burge, after I, who I did uh, uh, okay with, I was on the streets of New York with him, and he said, they're looking for a replacement for... Uh, for Gregory Hines in in uh, Jelly's Last Jam, he said you might want to look into that, and I just something hit me. I knew at that moment. I thought, oh man, this is going to be my next show. But also, I knew it was going to be a really hard show. To this day, physically, it's the hardest show that I've ever done. The character never leaves the stage. I think the character leaves the stage once, and it's to make a quick change. Um, but it's emotionally, physically. Uh, um, uh, draining everything about it and and the dancing was incredible and I'd studied tap before it was a kind of a new style of tap for me I hadn't studied rhythm tap which was very different but I've, I've had very quick feet and and uh, been a quick study with tap dancing so they ended up teaching me the all of Gregory's uh, uh, steps so I ended up doing that a gentleman by the name of Ted Levy who also co-choreographed the tap numbers in the show 
So it was a really a fun thing. But I started working on the tap numbers about three months before I started working on the rest of the show because I thought I can't be doing both of these at once. And I knew my weakest link was my tap dancing at that point. So by the time I did it, I, I felt a little bit more comfortable with it. And you also knew inevitably you would be compared with Gregory Hines as a tap dancer, so you really had to study up on that, I guess. Yeah, but, you know, you can't compare anybody to Gregory Hines as a tap dancer. I almost felt like I was safe that way because uh-huh. there's nobody else like Gregory Hines as a tap dancer, you know. Save Glover now, who was also in the show with me um, at that time because he played the young Jelly. Um, now he's taken that same school, that same style, and taken it off into his other level because he's added hip, hip-hop beats and, and uh, he's brought it to into today's music, actually, um, and has put his own style into it. But his influence, I think, his largest uh, mentor was was Gregory. From Jelly's Last Jam, then you went into Kiss of the Spider Woman. Yes, I replaced uh, Anthony Crivello in Kiss of the Spider Woman, and, and that's when I first met Garth Drabinsky, who was the producer of Live End and was producing that show. And about, uh, I ended up doing the show first with Cheetah Rivera, and we became fast friends, and, and still she's one of my, my great, great friends in the world, and I just love her. And one of my theater mentors, by the way, too, I, I call her. Um, I did it with Vanessa Williams. I did it with Maria Conchita Alonso also. And uh, we ended up closing the show. I was in it for about... Uh, a year and a half, I think, before it closed. And I think I went through about four um, uh, Molinas, too. I played opposite. Um, but about eight months into the show, J- Garth Drabinsky came up to me and said, I got a show I want you to do. Got this great part. Can't tell you what it is. I said, okay, well, Garth, you let me know when you can tell me. And every month or two, he'd come back, still got that show, still got that part, still can't tell you what it is. I said, great, okay. So finally he said, all right, I can tell you what it is. Got the rights. Show is ragtime. The role is Cole House Walker Jr. We're going to be doing workshops of it. I want you to be there. I said, "Oh, okay." Garth sounds really interesting. I remember seeing the movie when it first came out, but I didn't know that much about it. And I got the book and everything, and I read the book and again, and I thought, "Oh, I'm so wrong for this part." <laughs> <laughs> but I usually think that oddly enough when it comes to parts. And but went to the the first uh, workshop of it, and that has turned out to be the most magical show that I've ever done in in my whole career. The first workshop that we had, there were about 40 of us sitting around a very large group of tables. And um, Stephen Flaherty sat down and he played the very first uh, piano notes of it, which are the notes that ended up in the show. They they were never changed. And the little boys started saying his uh, thing. And something magical descended on the room. I mean, everybody felt it. And um, and I knew something incredible was going to happen at that point. And I felt, boy, here, this is the show that I've been waiting for. Now, why did you feel you were not suited for that role when you first read it? I I don't know. I mean, I always I, I think I always feel that way. I always I, I always think of other better actors that I could uh, that I want to see doing that, or you know, uh, this person. Oh, this person would be a great person. Why don't they want that person for it? Um, I, I I don't even remember all the reasons exactly why. Um, but it, I'm glad I was wrong. Is all I can say. As it turned out, you were very wrong. <laughs> yes, because you were very good in that role. Thank you. Obviously, very getting much. the Tony nomination. Well, this was the first role that you originated on Broadway. Um, the first right. one, well, I had originated mail and, and, oh, that's and right. okay, but they they ran so quickly. It's the first one that I'd originated yeah. that anybody saw. The first first major role and the major hit. So how did you get into into the character at that point? How did you prepare yourself for portraying Carl House Walker Jr.? My favorite thing always and continues to be research when I do a show. And I love researching the show, the character, the clothes, the food, the era, the, whatever I can get my hands, eyes, ears on. Uh, and that was true for that show. Um, I also read the book. I didn't see the movie again because I didn't want to be influenced by uh, um, 
the original Cole House's performance. His name just Howard Rollins. Howard Rollins. Thank you, Howard Rollins' performance. Because I remember I liked his performance a lot. And I thought, well, maybe I'll see it once I know what I'm doing with the role, and then I could see it and not feel like I'm being guided even subconsciously by what he's doing. So I didn't see it until months into the run, actually. I finally uh, watched it again. Um, But my favorite part really was the preparation for it. But it's one of those odd roles. There have been a few roles in my career. That was one of them. Don Quixote was one of them that... From that first reading that I was talking about, you know, and that magical thing descended on the room, it's like the character just blew into me, fully formed. And um, kind of the research that I ended up doing after that was more just to enhance what I had already done and what I already knew. Um, But that was one of those occasions where he just kind of took me over. Why don't we play a song from the show? You you had several. Do you want to pick one to play? Wow, there's a lot of great ones. Wheels of a Dream is a great one that everybody knows. But maybe one of my favorite songs, actually, is, is a song called Sarah Brown Eyes. When we were doing, I think, the second workshop of it, I remember uh, we were rehearsing a scene in one room. This is one of the reasons why it was so magical. And um, Lynn and Steve came running into the room where we were doing scene work, and they said, we have this new song. We have this new song for you to sing. Come in and do this. We want to play the song for you so you can sing it. And we went into the other room where they were working, and they started playing the song and singing it, and then we ended up uh, singing the song. And I fell in love with it. It's just such an incredibly beautiful song. So the song is Sarah Brown Eyes with Audra McDonald. From Ragtime, Song written by Stephen Flaherty, lyrics by Lynn Ahrens, Brian Stokes Mitchell, and Sarah Brown Eyes. So after Ragtime, then there was Kiss Me Kate. Yeah, that's really interesting because during uh, Ragtime, Roger Berlin, who is, uh, I call him the last of the gentleman producers, just a producer that I, I'm crazy for, and he's produced some incredible uh, hits on Broadway, uh, said, let's go to lunch. I want to talk to you about an idea I have. So we went to lunch, and, and he said, I, uh, I, uh, I'm getting the rights for kiss me kate and i would love for you to play frederick graham petruchio on the outside my reaction oh wow that's great roger let me know if i'm free love to do it that sounds like a really interesting thing on the inside kiss me kate oh my god i hate kiss me kate please (laughs) not kiss me kate oh please let me have another show when he comes back to ask me so i can say sorry roger i'm doing this other show as as luck would have it i wasn't doing another show and uh, one of my hard and fast rules is I have to love the show that I'm doing before I'll accept it. I just, I'm, I'm in a luxurious position where I can do that uh, now and, and kind of pick and choose things a little bit more carefully. But my main rule is gotta love what I'm doing. I have to love the material and I didn't love that material. And then I met with Michael Blakemore, the director, who's this incredible director. And I met with him. I thought, okay, this, I I hate this script. The script is awful. Let me talk to Michael Blakemore and see if he's going to change the script. I had a meeting with him. Was it basically the same as the 1948 script? Yes, yes. Uh huh. Uh, That's that's the one that I read. And Mm -hmm. so I talked to Michael and I said, so, uh, Michael, you you like the show Kiss Me, Kate, and you're the director? Oh, yes, it's a wonderful, marvelous show. There's music music by Cole Porter and so on and so forth. I said, oh, well, how about the book? Do you like the book? Oh, the book's marvelous. The book's fantastic. I think it's wonderful. There are a few things we might need to change here and there, but mostly I'm not going to touch the book at all. I'm thinking, oh man, <laughs> this is uh, this is really bad news because like, I, I can't stand the book. I think it's awful. So um, I, I think, okay, I'm, I got to be missing something. Roger Berlin loves this. Michael Blakemore lo- loves this. I got to be missing something. And I continued to read the script and I kept reading it, trying to find an end to it. And finally, on about my 10th reading of the script, I thought, I hate this script because I hate these characters. I hate the, the, the two leads. They don't like each other. They don't love each other. They don't, you know, it should be a love story with them. That's a problem. And if they fall in love, it should be in this. Oh, oh. Well, wait a second. Well, hold on. Well, if they're in love, then there should be a conclusion where. Oh. And I started reading it and I realized when I read it then that 
the script that Bella Spiewak wrote is this really brilliant script because it's not about anything the character says. Everything is between the lines. Maren Maisie, who uh, was my co-star in the show, and I later had a phone conference with Patricia Morrison, who was the original Lily in the show. And without any prodding from us, one of the first things she said was, well, you know, one of the things that Alfred and I discovered was it's not about the lines at all. It's all about what's in between the lines. And Marin and I went, oh, yeah, we were talking about the very same thing. So I, that's the moment I actually fell in love with, with Kiss Me Kate. So you did a complete reversal going from hating it to loving it? I did, yes. I actually did because then I, I found my way into the character and I found what I wanted to put into it. And, and uh, one of the things that I always look for in a show is heart. Gotta have heart. That you know, song is so true. And what I didn't see in the show was, was that heart. But what I'd realized is I had seen three bad productions of it in my past and I could not exorcise those from my head because they fell into the traps of playing what was on the page and not playing in between. So I thought that's what the show was about. And when I realized, oh, that's not what they wrote at all and found the, that key, for me, that, that's what made it. And then I had a blast in Marin Maisie. Boy, we had the most fun ever doing that show. And obviously, it was a good decision because you won the Tony for that. Michael Blakemore won the Tony. Yes. Kathleen Marshall won it for her choreography. Yeah, the show won for show Best won. Revival. Yep, Best Revival. Yeah. So it was a good decision you made. It seems so. <laughs> Hindsight being twenty twenty. Yes, Absolutely. After a run of six leading roles in Broadway shows in about 11 years, you made a turn because no one had seen you on Broadway in drama and yes. to play the lead in King Hedley II by August Wilson. How did that come about and was that a case of you having to reinvent yourself again so people would think of you in a different way. Y yes, but it's something I did consciously because one of my mottos is it's a good idea every now and then to rewrite yourself. And it's one of the things after Ragtime, I was looking for a show that was going to be very different from that. And it's one of the reasons why I was so attracted to Kiss Me Kate and kept trying to find the way into it because it was silly, stupid fun. It's Cole Porter. It's a old, quote unquote, dated musical. It's this big pompous character. Um, it was so different from Ragtime. Um, and Ragtime was very different from uh, Kiss of the Spider Woman. So one of the things I really have tried to do throughout my career is always change up. It's really what I've done with my album. It's I, I didn't want it to be what people were expecting. I wanted it to be something kind of new and fresh. Hopefully the people would listen to it and go, oh, wow, listen to that. I never thought of that song that way. I never realized the, that could be done that way. I never realized he could sing quite in that style or in that way. Um, my agent called me about uh, three weeks before Kiss Me Kate was over, and I was exhausted. It was a very long run, a very, very difficult role to do physically and, and, and uh, unvocally. And he said, I have good news and I have bad news for you. I said, well, what's that? He says, well, the good news is you've been offered the lead in August Wilson's next play. I'd already made up in my mind that I wanted to do a play next because I thought that's a really great way to shift gears. I said, oh, well, that's great. He said, what's the bad news? He said, the bad news is you're not going to get a vacation after Kiss Me, Kate, and you're only going to have nine days to rehearse it. Mm. They had already set the theater in Washington, D.C., and because of my schedule with Kiss Me, Kate, and when I was ending the show, and when they had to open the show in Washington, D.C., it only left nine days of rehearsal. So I said, well, send me the script over, but I knew, again, that little thing was going off to me saying, this is your next show, this is your next show. I'd always wanted to do an August Wilson play. It was a, a chance to originate a role in the play, to work with August, to, to work with some incredibly great actors, and to do this really interesting, dark, different role. 
Um, and so he sent me the script, and I remember going, oh, man, because, of course, as Augustus want to do or was want to do, he wrote all these incredible monologues, but they're very long. And, you know, when you're doing a monologue on stage, it's you're out there without a net. You lose your line. You lose your place. Nobody's going to jump in and help you with a line. You're doing a monologue. And I had about eight monologues in the original show. The original show, when we first did it in D.C., I think ran three hours and 40 minutes. Mm. Um, and I had a whole number of them, the shortest being about a half a page and the longest one being the end of the first act, which was basically this 15-page monologue with a few interjections from other characters. So that was the hardest show that I've ever done, and I almost ruined my voice doing that show because my voice was so tired after Kiss Me, Kate. And it was an angry young man character that I was playing, so there was a lot of yelling and a lot of screaming. And with nine days of rehearsal, I, I never got to... Uh, put it in my body properly it was like let me get the words out let me just learn the material let me get this out and you know get it out as honestly as I can but as a result I didn't have the advantage of the rehearsal time where you would be exploring okay that's unsafe to do with my voice okay that's hurting my voice okay let me find another way to approach that line let me do that I couldn't do that it was like shot out of a cannon nine days later I'm in front of an audience and and that was that so um, it was that was a very very difficult show to do and I I would never repeat that again doing an August Wilson Blaine in nine days or or any role of that uh, ilk I I would never do that again but I'm glad I did it that time I, I wouldn't change anything in my past and from there, a year later, playing Don Quixote de la Mancha. That was a show that I'd always wanted to do. I first did uh, one of the muleteers at the Belleville Dinner Theater in San Diego, California, that, uh, another long-since-dead uh, dinner theater in the age of, of dinner theater. And I remember doing the show, and I loved that show, and, and I loved the role. And the person who played Don Quixote, I thought, wow, that's, he's really, really good. And that role, even then, sat right in my voice. And I thought, boy, one day I would really love to play that role. And I called up my agent, David Kolodner, and I said, David, what's going on with – because I, again, wanted to shift gears totally from after King Headley. I said, what's going on with Man of La Mancha? Is there anybody thinking of doing it, or what are, what's the deal with the rights? He said, I don't know. I'll, I'll uh, make some calls. And he called me back about a week later and said – I just talked to Mitch Lee, and he wants to get together with you. Mitch is the is the composer of it. Turns out, uh, I sit down at Mitch's office, and I tell him, you know, I was interested in doing the show. He said, well, this is really interesting because um, I've been talking to the other uh, um, people involved with the show, and we've been wanting to do a revival of the show but haven't seen yet the – the person, the right person to play Don Quixote, and I saw you in Man of Lo- uh, in uh, Kiss Me, Kate, and I-, I was sitting in the audience, and I said, that's the guy to play to play Don Quixote. And I said, well, that's a nice accident because I would really love to do that role. And so right then and there, we shook hands and said, let's let's make it happen. So from that point, we, you know, I was kind of in a different position. I was in the, a bit of a creative position and got to pick the director and the people that were involved along with everybody else um, and ended up doing this great production of it. Well, you mentioned uh, about being involved in the putting together of the creative team because that production was unique in that all of the prior productions and certainly the revivals and the original Broadway production had all been actually under the control of Mitch Lee right. until that time. And this was really going to be a departure and rethinking. Was that something that you had to convince him of or was he ready to to let it be something new? I think he was ready to let it be something new. Um, we didn't want to 
take a you know far right turn from it. We still wanted it to be Man of La Mancha. We didn't want it to do it in modern dress or in space outfits or anything like that. So we were still going to be true to it. But we weren't going to use the same set that it had always been used, which is you know this huge rake stage. that It worked very well. But people had seen it so many times. It's like, well, why do that on Broadway if people have already seen that in their community theaters and their uh, – and their college productions, the same concept. And I thought it would be great just to kind of rethink the set, rethink uh, just the show uh, without really changing substantially anything in the show. And I don't know if we really changed much of anything uh, in the show, but uh, uh, the set ended up, we had this great uh, set design for for the show and, and changed a few uh, conceptual things about it, but mostly not. It's still Man of La Mancha, and, and uh, I think uh, Mitch was happy with the result that we had. What was different about the set? It wasn't raked anymore, I presume. It wasn't else? raked, and, and the concept of the set was it was this, like you're in this, it was a the huge metal, almost canister it looked like, that it was this copper piece that actually moved and opened up with this huge stairway. Um, uh, the other, the other, the concept, and what one of the things that the, uh, uh, Jonathan Kent, the, the director, and I uh, had talked about was... Uh, one of the things I was fascinated about Man of La Mancha is that it takes place in a prison, but I thought, boy, wouldn't it be great if you the prison kind of opens up and becomes other things? And so we used through projections and some other different ways of describing it. The set was kind of a trick set. It would split up in different ways when the when the barber comes down and he's in his field of flowers and you see him coming down in his field of flowers. Um, so it brought more of a realistic world into the set as opposed to just making the prison set the outside world. It's also interesting what you said a moment ago that you were involved in choosing the director. Usually it's the other way around, isn't it? The director usually chooses the actors. This yes. is kind of the reverse. How, how common is that, that the actor in the lead gets to choose the director? Not common. So I, I feel really fortunate to be in a position where I was able to do something like that because it's, it's very uncommon nowadays. You know, in the old days, you used to have, uh, uh, was it uh, Gold, uh, Goldman who wrote the book The Season? You know, William one of his, Goldman. yes, William Goldman, and he talks about the money in a show and talks about who has the power in the show, it, the producer, the director, the star, the whatever. Back then, there were many stars who would be able to do that. You know, your Alfred Drakes and your, uh, uh, who else? I'm trying to think of this, you know, so many stars from that area. Uh, Helen Hayes, you know, you had people. And Ethel Merman. Ethel Merman that could say, okay, we're going to do this show and I want this person as my director and this show we're going to do. And, this is how we're going to do it, and and people would listen to that. But that's not so common anymore. And I think the problem is because these Broadway shows are so expensive, and you have so many people concerned about the money, rightly so, that people are afraid to put that much power into somebody's hand. But also, I wanted it to be a collaborative effort. It wasn't me saying this is going to be the director. This is going to be. It was like let's all this do this together. And David Stone, who went on to produce Wicked, was the producer of the show. So we always were incredibly collaborative about it. It wasn't just me saying this is what it needs to be. We talked and listened, and and nobody had complete power, uh, but we all had veto votes that we, that we could we could put in. So what were you looking for then in a director? So usually the director knows what he or she is looking for in the actors. What were you looking for in the director? Somebody with a different vision, somebody somebody that kind of could see what I was, uh, see the show the way that I wanted to see it. And I didn't say too much, actually, when I was talking to, re- to directors. I wanted to really get their ideas about uh, how they saw the show because I didn't want to guide them and say, well, this is what I'm looking for a director because sometimes good directors say, oh, yeah, sure, that's well, that's exactly what I was thinking of. You never really know that. And Jonathan Kent, uh, we hit it off immediately. We just seemed to think so similarly and had so many of the same ideas. Um, and even in the in the 
ad meetings, people were saying we were finishing each, each other's sentences. It was a, just a really nice relationship that we had. While Man of La Mancha was your last Broadway show, you were involved in a fairly landmark concert version of South Pacific. Did you ever think you'd be doing a show with Reba McIntyre and Alec Baldwin? Well, uh, sure, why not? Um, you know, actually, I, I didn't get the chance to see Reba in Annie Get Your Gun, and I'd heard the most incredible things about her performance and about her as a, as a performer from the people backstage saying she was gracious and kind and nice, and she was great on stage and consistent and professional. And I thought, wow, that would be really fun. So uh, Paul Gemignani uh, got the opportunity to do this concert, and he said, well, he wanted to uh, do it if, if, I, if I was one of the people he wanted to do it with. And he called me about it and explained it was going to be a Carnegie Hall. I said, oh, that sounds like fun. Now, here's another show. I, oddly enough, I knew so many musicals. Somehow, South Pacific slipped through my fingers. I didn't really know South Pacific. I'd never done the show. I'd never seen the, sh the stage show. I'd never read the script. And I've read and heard so many things. I've heard the music, of course, so everybody knows it. But even the the movie that is aired on, on television, you know, every year it seems. I saw a piece of it this year and this piece of it that year and another piece of it this year. And so I had constructed this incredibly wrong plot of what the music was about. And I thought Lieutenant Cable and the Nellie Forbush character were in love with each other. And then he does something to make her mad. And then she wants to wash him out of the hair. But but who's this old fart French guy? Well, it turns out I'm the old fart French guy in, the, in this production. So it, it was really interesting when I read it. I went, wow, I had no idea that this that's what the show was about. And to get to do it at Carnegie Hall with Paul Gemignani conducting and Alec and, and Reba and this incredible ensemble cast and uh, the other happy accident kind of is a last minute decision. I think everybody went, wow, this is something really magical going on here. Let's air it and, and, and film it and air it, in which they did for public television. And uh, it turned out to be this phenomenal hit for public television and really neat for me because how often is a performance of a stage actor like that um, preserved? Of course, just recently issued on a CD, and we happen to have that CD. So you know what I'm leading to now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> let's see. Well, they, Emile Dubeck, that's uh, you. Emile Dubeck, yes. My, it's interesting. When I was listening to the music for that, everybody knows Some Enchanted Evening. Usually that's the first thing sung out of people's mouths. Uh, and when I was first going over the music with Paul Gemignani, uh, we were going through that, and then we got to This Nearly Was Mine, This the song that he sings is kind of his 11 o'clock number. And I looked at the song and went, oh, my God. God, this is an incredible. For my money, this is the song in the show. This is the the heart of the show and what the show's about. And um, and I fell in love with this this incredible song. Um, and and it seems to be the song that that people have been responding to uh, very much. So I'm I'm really happy that people love it as as much as I do. So why don't you, why don't you play it? This nearly was mine. This nearly was mine, of course, from South Pacific. Brian Stokes Mitchell as Emile DeBeck. Stokes, you've got the new CD out. You're doing uh, something at Ravinia in July, the 15th of July, I believe. Yes. You're doing a concert there. Yes. Are we going to see you back on Broadway again? I hope. I hope so, too. I'm waiting for the right show to woo me back. Um, I, I'd really love for it to be a, an original show. Um, a fresh show. Um, I'm, I'm waiting for the right show. I always have my eyes and ears open for, for that show that would bring me back. Anything else that we should be talking about as we wrap? Oh, just mention the album more. Uh, <laughs> well, know, it's self-titled uh, Brian Stokes Mitchell. Easy to remember. Name of the album, name of the singer. That's right. And on Playbill Records and PlaybillRecords.com has got a great website. You can actually hear cuts of the album. You can order it pretty much any place now or go into any store and it's there too.
Terrific. Well, Stokes, thanks so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. My pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Stokes. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free. From our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten for Downstage Center. That's a wrap, and thank you. <laughs>